Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything and anything to do with Australian politics and more. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this Super Saturday special, we analyse the key points from the by-elections, the Kill Bill strategy and Pulp Fiction, and we look at a mainstream media fail on a grand scale. I'm Eddie Djokovic, the editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, historian, musician and writer. We waited a long, long time for these by-elections, over two months, and as we predicted, there were no changes to the numbers in Parliament. The seats of Perth, Fremantle, Braddon and Longman all returned to the Labor Party, and the seat of Mayo returned to the Independent, Rebecca Sharkey. So nothing changed in one way, but everything has changed in another way. That's right. It has made no difference, as we said, to, to the makeup of Parliament. One of the interesting things is that nobody has lost their seat over being a dual national. Whether this means that the that clause in the Constitution is redundant or whether there's something else at play, like good candidates or popular candidates, uh, is a question, I think, for, for another time. We saw a seat that the Liberals felt they should have won be returned to the Labor Party, whereas... By all ways of looking at it, the Liberals weren't going to win it. Uh, that was the Queensland seat of Longman, of course. The swings were nothing spectacular, except I would say that they were a bit better than some people were saying, that you wouldn't expect much of a swing towards incumbent candidates in, in a by-election. But 3 and 4% is not insignificant. It's not, you know, a 10 or 12% swing. So as you mentioned, on paper, the results are quite unspectacular. It seemed to be the, the average anti-government swing of 4%, although there's a bit of a moot point as to what constitutes an average government swing. And in the seat of Braddon in Tasmania, there was a slight swing towards the Liberal National Party. So do you think that there possibly was a problem of the Liberal Party not being able to manage expectations that they were going to pick up these seats? I heard it this morning uh, credited to the American politician Tip O'Neill. And I've certainly said it before, all politics is local. You had a combination of very good local members, I think. Local members who were liked, local members who work hard for their constituency, local members who are part of the community, and a combination of pretty poor opposition. I think if we go back to Longman in Queensland... Trevor Rutherberg had exaggerated his achievements. He might have got away with the wrong medal because for a lot of people, the hierarchy of medals is complex and esoteric. Although as someone on Twitter pointed out, no one ever gets them wrong the wrong way. Oh, sorry, I said I had the DSO, but I've actually got the Victoria Cross. It's always the other way. He might have got away with calling himself a flight engineer when he was um, ground crew. He was not going to get away with saying he was a captain or a major when he was a corporal. And then I understand that there is a large military base either in the electorate or next to the electorate with four or 5,000 military personnel. So I don't know what the strategy was there. And he was, I think, ex-Campbell Newman, who is still on the nose in Queensland. Uh, Campbell Newman has the distinction of being one of the worst premiers in Queensland. He lost after one term from a massive landslide to another massive landslide. Probably 
gets down to poor candidate selection, not just in the seat of Longman, but across the board in those by-elections as well, because there are a lot of very familiar faces. Brett Whiteley, he's actually been in that seat before. He's quite unimpressive. He was an ex-state politician as well, previously a one-term federal member, yet another bloke. Then there's also the selection of Georgina Downer in the seat of Mayo. And wasn't that a spectacular implosion by her father? He basically said, we're a family of nation builders and all these blow-ins came in and were nasty to us. And For an ex-diplomat, that's extraordinary language. I will say that I thought Georgina's concession speech, or the bit I saw of it, was gracious and, and appropriate. I think we should give credit where it's due. But she was a dud candidate. She was a blow-in. She might have grown up in the area, but she moved to, to Melbourne 20 years ago with the perception in politics, it doesn't matter what the truth is, it's what the perception is. But the perception was is that Adelaide was too small a town for her, that she was too big for it. And as a result, she wasn't seen as the local that she may well feel she is. Well, perhaps the Liberal Party headquarters, they decided that they weren't going to win that seat. And what better way to set up Georgina Downer on the path for a parliamentary career, not necessarily in this seat, but get her out there in the in the electorate. This was a training ground for her. She probably will never win that seat. There may be other seats in South Australia that might be more suitable for her, but, yeah, definitely not in the seat of Mayo. I don't, I don't think it'll be a South Australian seat. I think uh, she's now tainted as being a blow-in, and she's got now the awe of not even being able to win the seat her father held. My feeling is that there were quite a few other mistakes made by the... Liberal Party during the during the by-election campaign. So first of all, they didn't run in the seats of Perth and Fremantle, and we can understand why they did that. They were trying to save money for the main federal election whenever that's that's due. The Labor Party only held those seats by around three or four percent, and I think these would have been quite winnable seats. At first, I thought Fremantle's fairly strong working class, you know, the docks and what have you, but it's gentrified over the last few years and. It's not the safe Labor seat that it was. I'd have thought a good, strong local candidate might have, if not one, knocked it down to, you know, a one or half percent margin, which is something I'd have thought the Liberal Party might have liked. But the Western Australian Party is a slightly different party to everyone else, too. And they, they think in a slightly in a different way. They may not have had the money to, to run in seats where, as you said, there's a federal election coming up. Let's look at the other seats that we know we can win. And I also noticed that there was a strategy to align the Liberal National Party with the One Nation Party as well. And I'm pretty sure that that backfired. It cost them quite dearly in the WA state election last year. And I think it cost them again in Queensland in the Longman by-election. So did they realise that being close to One Nation is not actually providing them with any electoral success. Most One Nation voters, it seems, are people who are disaffected with the Liberal Party. They're not getting a lot of people from Labor, although they are getting people from Labor, but mostly they're coming from people who were disappointed in various parts of legislation. At the moment, it's an anti-Malcolm Turnbull swing. There is a belief amongst the further right that Malcolm Turnbull is a dangerous socialist. 
I'm not sure if he's a dangerous socialist or an extreme right winger, but whatever the case is, I think we can agree that Malcolm Turnbull is a woeful campaigner. And there is the track record. He lost 15 seats and four senators at the 2016 election. He had swings against him in the Benelong by-election last year. There were swings against him in Longman. He was expected to win Braddon, but he didn't. So can we safely say that Malcolm Turnbull is not such a great political campaigner? Watching him dealing with those women in Longman, where he completely misses the point. She says, oh, my grandson works at a cafe. And he says, oh, McDonald's. He floundered. He got really annoyed. Somebody like John Howard loved that type of confrontation. Paul Keating loved that type of confrontation. It was maybe the only way you could get Keating out amongst normal people in the hope that there'd be some kind of confrontation like that. Kevin Rudd loved dealing with the people. I don't think he liked confronting them as much. And Bob Menzies loved going out and and mixing it up with people who disagreed with him. Malcolm doesn't seem to. And, of course, part of campaigning or being a politician is selling not your side the policy. They're already on your side. It's selling the other side the policy, the ideas, and, and why you should. Now, all of those candidates before would understand that they're not going to win in terms of they're not going to get everyone over. But it looked great. It bolstered the supporters. If it made it onto television, and you just never know, you might win over the person you're clashing with. And here's one snippet that I found quite interesting. Budget papers that set it out. So, so all those Labor Party posters are full of lies and what we do is we tell the truth you do not and we do well it's, well, it's we misguided do. truth because oh, misguided truth is yeah it? absolutely misguided because How can it be a misguided truth well you know if the elective surgery rates are higher in Tasmania than most other places there's a problem 42 if there are chronic increase chronic in hospital chronic health chron- well I chronic I, I, I won't device at least go away. accept that you, you've acknowledged that what I've said is the truth and that's what, very what important I, yes you have you just I, did. I'm talking about chronic illness and preventative yeah. health and Think stuff like that very creative thanks thanks good on you all right that's very good David thank you for acknowledging I was speaking the truth that's important no you just did and I thank you for that that's good good to make that so here we have the Prime Minister of the country he's reduced his political debate to basic, very basic comments. The Liberals always tell the truth. Labor always lies. Now, this is grade two material that we'd find in a schoolyard. Should we expect more from a prime minister? They're campaigning in a very 1990s way. And it's a way before Facebook and Twitter. It's a way before where the mainstream media had a lot bigger role in shaping the narrative. The narrative is now shaped almost like it was in the 1850s, by people talking to each other, by live town meetings. We've moved away from Frank Packer and Keith Murdoch and John Norton deciding what they'll talk about and what the important issues are and what will be presented to the public, which the debate will be uh, centred around. We are now back to a point where governments, I think, are won and lost on not just social media, but on individual reactions and that voters select the narrative. And I think the whole dynamic of social media and new media is is totally changing politics as well. So mainstream media is still the dominant media force, but it's sort of slowly being chipped at and not as important as it used to be. And I think that's probably what happened in the 
footage that we saw of Malcolm Turnbull arguing with those pensioners because a lot of that was removed from mainstream media and we found out more about it through social media on Twitter and Facebook. So there's a whole new dynamic there and I think that's another issue that probably costs the Liberal Party in these by-elections, that they haven't really fully understood the nature of social media and of course they're still using it but they're not using it in a very effective way. And I think that costs them dearly and they'll probably have to learn some new techniques in the lead up to the general election. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the failure of the Kill Bill campaign and more Pulp Fiction. Bill was an excellent movie produced by Quentin Tarantino and it was so good that he made two volumes, Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2. It's also the informal name of the conservative strategy to destroy Bill Shorten's leadership. The first strategy reared its head in the final weeks of the 2016 federal election and it reached another peak during the recent by-elections campaign. But with these favourable results for Bill Shorten, have we seen the end of the Kill Bill campaign in the media and will the Liberals engage in a better strategy next time around? They seem to have changed their focus a bit to Emma Hussar, whose big crime seems to be have asked a male stuffer to wash up, asked somebody else to walk a dog, and who went to a Bruno Mars concert in Brisbane, which she demonstrated conclusively was not on the public ticket, but in her own time, which, of course, all parliamentarians are allowed. You're allowed to do things on your own time. Well, I guess after Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese, there are 67 other Labor MPs in the lower house and scores of other senators. So places like BuzzFeed and News Limited, they're spoiled for choice. They are. This, I think, goes back to, again, looking to the past in the way that Tony Abbott was able to kill Julia Gillard by this relentless campaign. Now, what helped back in the glory days, I guess, of 2010 and 11, was that you did have that underlying misogyny that gave at least tacit support to that approach. We don't have that, of course, with a male candidate with Bill Shorten. The other thing is that Bill Shorten is, I think, disliked by the press gallery. I'm not sure he's deeply loved by the public, but I don't think he's disliked by the public. He's not a a Gough Whitlam figure, say, or a Bob Menzies figure or a John Howard figure who is able to inspire enough of the public. I was interested in this uh, most recent round of the Kill Bill strategy where it all started in in late June and in all of all places in the Shoalhaven Workers Club and it started when Anthony Albanese made the Whitlam oration. There's nothing spectacular about this. Anthony Albanese is a front bencher in the uh, Labor Party opposition. He makes a speech every couple of weeks. And it wasn't as though he made a speech at the Sydney Town Hall. It was the Shoalhaven Workers Club on the lower south coast of New South Wales. 
a lot of people, including Labor supporters and people to the left of Labor, as well as Liberal and National, thought that it was a direct challenge. And I thought, I know Anthony a little bit. I used to live in his electorate. It seemed to me that it would be an extremely stupid thing to do to derail what had been a fairly successful Labor campaign up to six months before an election. It guarantee another close election at best and probably another loss. He wouldn't do that. And yet people were convinced that he was aiming for the top job. It's also very difficult in Labor now, thanks to the Rudd reforms, to topple a leader. I'm pretty sure that Anthony Albanese, he'd much rather give up his left arm than uh, create political havoc for the, for the Labor Party. But despite all of this, despite the rules that are now in place that make a challenge incredibly difficult, and certainly caucus can change those rules if they want to, but there's the transactional costs involved in changing your leader and also at this late stage where we've got a federal election around the corner, we don't know exactly when. But the, the media did a complete botch up of this process. They kept on pushing the idea that Anthony Albanese was making a challenge to Bill Shorten's position. And it wasn't just one part of the media. It was pretty much the entire mainstream media, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Australian Financial Review, News Limited, of course, The Guardian, Career Mail, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 2. I could go on, but you get the idea. They all push the same line that Albanese is making a challenge, Shorten is a goner, and it's a test of leadership between Shorten and Turnbull at these by-elections. In my most radical moments, I think we need to dismantle the press gallery. I think it is archaic. It's exclusionary. I think it creates the wrong type of relationships between parliamentarians and journalists. Joe Lyons, back in the early 30s, used to put on drinks nights for journalists, probably for not unrelated reasons. Uh, Joe Lyons was the most electorally successful prime minister until uh, Bob Menzies in the 50s. Quite often it seems like the journalists or the reporters get it totally wrong. Now let's listen to this snippet of Barry Cassidy on The Insiders. Okay, off the top, the media, I'm part of it, we're all part of it. I, I think the media predicated maybe 90% of its pre-poll analysis on the basis that Labor would lose one or perhaps two of those seats. We wasted your time, we wasted a lot of your time on that. Is it time for a mere culpa? Well, yes and no. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the seat polls, the seat polls are rubbish. Breaking news, seat polls are rubbish. Been since 2013, 2016. Yep. Seat polls are rubbish and they influence coverage and that's unfortunate, obviously. Uh, but a lot of the conversation that was happening around Labor in the, it, during this period was not a media concoction. We didn't make that up. We didn't invent that. That was happening. Anthony Albanese gave a speech in public. It wasn't just sort of whispers behind hands. Uh, Anthony Albanese made a speech positioning himself uh, for assuming poor outcomes in these results. Now, uh, also... The journalist response that were on the couch that day, they all went into defensive mode and claimed that they didn't do anything wrong. I think we need to acknowledge that Barry Cassidy was absolutely right, and I will absolutely defend him to the hilt, that they spent a lot of time... They must have known at some level that the evidence just wasn't there. It was clear to us watching on the outside that there was no challenge, that the by-elections weren't going to change very much. 
In fact, where we got it wrong in that I think I probably underestimated how much it would destabilise uh, Malcolm Turnbull. And even then, I'm not quite sure how destabilised. There have been rumours flying around that a group of ministers went in and asked him to resign on Monday. I don't know how true those rumours are, that there's going to be a party meeting called for Friday where Peter Dutton is going to stand. Again, I don't know how true any of this is. And But certainly, rumours tend to be interesting. We tend to work on two base emotions. Greed, yes, we're winning and we want to win more. Or fear, oh God, oh God, oh God, we're going to lose and I'm going to lose all my entitlements and we have to do something and change it now. It was really interesting watching the other three journalists. Catherine Murphy, I thought, was visibly upset by the fact that it might not have been a real story. Catherine Murphy is a good journalist, but she was caught in that notion of this is definitely a story and this is definitely going to be the results of things. Malcolm Farr and Nikki Savar, you could see them bristle when Barry said, we got it wrong and we wasted all this time. Well, there's nothing wrong with admitting that got things wrong. Sometimes on the New Policies podcast, we get things wrong, but that's okay. You admit it and then you move on. Exactly. I actually admired him a little bit for standing up and going against what every other journalist was saying and saying, no, we, we were wrong. I do, by the way, understand the others mightn't want to admit it for all kinds of reasons, not just personal ego, but a lot of emotional investment. They were generally affronted. They had worked very hard on that story. They had done a lot of work on it. The fact that it wasn't anything to go on, that's part of the journalist's lot too anyway. A lot of stories look promising and end up going nowhere. But one thing that I, I can safely say is that this round of the Kill Bill strategy, it definitely didn't work this time around and it descended more into a Pulp Fiction type of strategy. But let's see what the media gets up to next time and whether this strategy will rear its ugly head again in the lead up to the next federal election. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we assess what the Super Saturday results will mean for the rest of this parliamentary term. There was speculation that the next federal election would be held this year, but we might have to wait just a little while longer, maybe when this full term expires in May 2019. There were quite a few political lessons from these by-elections, and the party that understands those lessons the best is the one that will probably win the next election. So what does the future hold both for Bill Shorten and for Malcolm Turnbull? One thing we have to remember is that we're living in a post-Tony Abbott world in which Tony Abbott changed all the rules. And suddenly it became very hard to predict anything when you were a political uh, tragic or a political scientist or whatever you want to call it. It becomes very difficult because the old evidence doesn't normally point. I think Malcolm Turnbull, or the Liberal Party, I'm sorry, is gone for all money next election. Whether it's a landslide or whether it's close, I don't think they can win. I think the five by-elections have shown that. If you look at the 5% swing that translate in Queensland, that translates to five Queensland seats. 
if you lose Queensland, you you lose. As we said earlier, he's not a great campaigner. He doesn't connect with the electorate. And the great irony is that he was someone who would connect with the electorate. He was the great white left-wing hope, the candidate that the left could live with. Well, I think a lot of people were saying that he was the right-wing Gough Whitlam, and that has not turned out to be the case at all. And only an idiot keeps on using the same old strategy and hoping for a different result. And the Liberal Party under Malcolm Turnbull just hasn't learnt new strategies. They keep trying the same old process. They lost 14 seats and four senators at the 2016 election. They, they, they've had swings against them in, in recent by-elections. And it seems like they're, they're just not willing to learn. It, it's like the old um, adage about war. Generals fight the last war. Circumstances have changed, yet they use those strategies. It will be interesting. Will they dump the key policy of big tax cuts? The electorate has, in, on the whole, stopped believing the lie that trickle-down economics trickles down. Money floats to the top. In fact, Wayne Swan proved that with his uh, policies that got us through the, the, the GFC. He gave everyone under a, uh, under a certain amount of earnings $1,000 and people paid off their credit cards. They bought new appliances and this meant that the money went was put back into the economy and then that got us through the GFC. But the company tax cut, numerically, it's quite a simple proposition. The Liberal government wants to reduce it from the current rate of 30% down to 25%. I think everyone gets that. But it's an esoteric policy issue. It's only really discussed within the boardrooms of Australia. Out there in the electorate, they could not care less. It's not like it's a barbecue stopper or people talk about it every day. I've never heard anyone talk about it. So something that should possibly be a fourth or fifth order issue politically out there in the sphere has been magnified into a number one issue for the Liberal Party. It's their number one signature policy. And if they had any political smarts about them, they would have done it in a different way. And against cutting penalty rates, and there was a study that came out yesterday that showed that cutting penalty rates has not had an effect on the price of things in restaurants, that you still pay the surcharge on Sundays. Company tax cuts have generally fed share buybacks that go back into the boards and the CEOs and pay rises for the CEOs, not for everybody else. When people start to unpack this stuff, and you're right, a lot of people look at it 30%, 20%, and of course you don't pay the bigger rates till you hit a certain amount of money anyway. And when we really look at it, how many companies last year didn't pay tax anyway? So cutting the tax, they're not going to say, oh, well, now it's down to 25%. Let's not fiddle our way out of it let's pay our 25% rather than the 30%. They're not going to do that at all. So it seems like they're stuck in a bit of a pincer movement where they've got these policies that are not well liked by the electorate. And I think we've got evidence for that, the 2016 election and these recent by-elections. They've pretty much got a team of uh, performers that are not performing at all. They need a reset, but what sort of reset will that be? Will it be just a matter of dumping these unpopular policies, such as the company tax cuts, or will it be something else, such as a fresh leader that might do the reset for them? At this stage, I think the best thing they can do is lose the next election and then go through a three- to five-year process of rebuilding. The strategies haven't worked. The Tony Abbott strategy of burn everything down 
goddamn government, but once you've burned everything down, what do you do with it? Well, it's also a case where during their time in opposition between 2007 and 2013, it's like they had no policy direction, policy development or anything like that. It's, it's, it's like the Liberal National Government from 2013 onwards, they've tried to make it a continuation of the previous Howard Government between 1996 and 2007, and time has moved on. They've got the same sort of characters in Parliament on their front bench team. They've got the same sort of policies and philosophies, and that won't work anymore. It might have worked or it might have been relevant 20 years ago, but the world has moved on. Exactly. And you know, one of the great cliched criticisms of the current party is that they want to turn Australia back to the 1950s. I think certainly they want to turn Australia back to 2000 and 2013, uh, 1996, <laughs> 1998, not, not so much 2007. They're being led by the IPA, of course. They're taking a lot of policy cues from the IPA. And as you pointed out last podcast, the whole purpose is to stop, destroy, tear down, sell off. There's no building. There's no forward vision. There's no proactive policy. It's all reactive. I think... When they do bring in policy outside outside that manifesto, they get it horribly wrong. Look at the My Health Record debacle. It's important, I think, to have all your if you're if you have complicated health, to have everything in a central location so that each time you go to another specialist or doctor or hospital they can call it all up and say, Okay, there's this that's all good. One thing that does interest me is the just the shift in the dynamics of media reporting and just within the overall stocks of both mainstream political parties. So up until the by-elections, it was all about Bill Shorten, Bill Shorten, Bill Shorten, Leadership Challenge, Albanese, etc. And it's almost like that's done a completely 180-degree shift. And now all the pressure is on to Malcolm Turnbull. So we've discussed what the issues are for Malcolm Turnbull and the future of the Liberal Party in the lead-up to the next election. But is it time for the Labor Party to become a little bit more confident about its chances at the next election? Complacency is death. (laughs) I think... They need to campaign like they're going to lose. I think while you have a a mainstream media that doesn't like you for whatever reason, all it takes is, again, it's all perception. The truth doesn't matter. We live in an era of fake news. We live in an era of where black can be white and white can be black. It doesn't matter what you did. It's what they think you did. Labor has to campaign like it's an underdog and be hammering the policies. I think what the Liberal Party have to do if they want to win is actually go away and think of actual policies. And I don't like saying this, but I don't think they've got the cabinet to do that. I don't think they've got the cabinet, but also they haven't got the time to do that. So the next federal election, it does need to be called well, it has to be held in May 2019. There's all these little complications which they could actually hold off up until November 2019, but that's very, very unlikely to happen. And May 2019 for the federal election date is now the bookie's new favourite, closely followed by September 2018 and April 2019. I actually said that the next election was going to be held in August 2018, so I got it wrong there, and here's my mea culpa. I think the other time that we were thinking about was November 2018, 
that date is not favoured at all. As time goes on, I think that Malcolm Turnbull might be a little bit snookered on the on his options for elections. Yeah, uh, March 2019 is the New South Wales state election that is set in stone, that is legislated. They're legislated through to 2040 or something like that. It's not going to be March. May, I think, is probably the likely date. April is Easter and Anzac Day, so that's... I think two weekends out, but you've lost two weekends in April and with school holidays, which really only leaves February or uh, May. And as time goes on, there's less time for, for Malcolm Turnbull to look at look at these options. So I'd say that we've scrapped the idea of August because that's gone. We've scrapped the idea of November because that's probably too difficult. I think it's looking more and more likely to be May 2019. So as we like to say... Politics Never Sleeps, and we'll keep watching this space. That's it for this new Politics Podcast for this month. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month, and we may still have the same Prime Minister next month, but you never know. You can continue the conversation at our website, which is newpolitics.com.au. And if you do like our program, go to the Apple iTunes store and give our program a five-star rating. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to all, and it's goodbye to our listeners. And I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.